Thank you, Nancy, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. I'm glad that you could be with us as we continue a series in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, in particular the Beatitudes, this section at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be looking at that together for the next few weeks, one by one, the values of the kingdom in this series entitled, Can You See It? Hoping that we collectively will gain a vision for the values of Christ and God's reign in our lives and in our life together so that we can best serve one another and our city and our world. So toward that end, take a moment, if you would, uh, and join me as we pray, asking God to teach us through the text this morning. Father, we'll pause now and thank you that as the God of Jacob, you are the God of all of us, that you are the God of uh, those who run, of those who are afraid, of those who are presumptive at times. And this is surely all of us in various ways, various measures, And thank you that the earth is the Lord's, as we've already heard read in the text this morning. Uh, As uh, your ambassadors, would you teach us what it means to live well on the earth as people of hope in this season? We pray in the name of Christ, who is our hope. Amen. Well, uh, welcome, everyone. As we continue the series, uh, we're looking this morning at the declaration Blessed, or as we saw last week, the heroes, the heroes are the meek, for the meek will inherit the earth. And this is what we'll be considering this morning. And the backdrop, of course, is uh, Jesus is speaking these words to his disciples, and they were living at a time uh, when they had lost their, uh, the Jews had lost their sense of cultural identity uh, due to the Roman Empire kind of overshadowing them, and they lost their freedoms, and their, their, their national uh, identity. They were no longer a nation. They were occupied. They were an occupied area. And so in that setting, one of the questions on the table was, how did the people of God respond when uh, the, there was a dissonance between their view of the world and the culture, the prevailing culture? How do people of God respond when the culture isn't moving in the direction that uh, the people of God would like it to move? And if you can believe this, Uh, not all the people of God agreed on how to respond. Can you imagine that? Different views on how to respond to uh, disappointment with culture. And I'm going to give you three views that were prevailing then, and they're prevailing now in different ways. Uh, First was there was a group called the Zealots among the Jews, and they were like this. Uh, Look, we're going to take back the culture. The culture has been stolen from us, so like through, by any means necessary, including violence, we're going to restore and we're going to bring justice. Uh, the, the, the clearest manifestation of that in our present world would be in what's called liberation theology, for those who are interested. And it's, it's people who say, look, when Jesus says that uh, uh, he, he cares for the poor, when God cares for the poor, it's not just the poor in spirits, the literal poor. There are people making $3 a week picking coffee beans so that we can enjoy cheap coffee. Is that fair, right? And so liberation theology says, uh, bring economic justice and human trafficking, uh, bring environmental justice, and here's the key to, to zealots, by any means necessary, including violence, right? And they were, that happened then, and there was this, this rebellion, uh, the Maccabean rebe- rebellion, when the Jews tried to you know, overthrow the Roman Empire. That, it, it, these things happened. So that was, that was a thing. Then there was another group. They were the Essenes, and the Essenes were like this. Do you know what? Uh, cult- forget culture. 
Culture is decaying. It's a cesspool of immorality and greed and injustice. And the best thing that the people of God can do is withdraw entirely from culture. We're going to live in caves. We're going to live in communes. Uh, We're going to share our resources. We're going to try and change the culture. We're going to provide a radical alternative to prevailing culture by withdrawing entirely from culture. Let culture do what culture does. We're living different. We're going to move the mountains and ski. <laughs> or we're going, to live in a, we're going to live in a cave. Or we're going to live in a desert. We're going to live in a commune, whatever it is. But the Essenes were withdrawing for the sake of purity. So you had a group trying to overthrow by the sword. You had a group withdrawing for the sake of purity. And the Pharisees were the group who said, here's the problem. God's mad at us, we the people of God, because we haven't uh, lived pure enough to draw the culture into our values. And so what we need is like a moral reformation, right? And if we're holier, then God will be pleased with us and and, and our our identity will be restored. So uh, violence, withdrawal, moral purity, very little's changed, right? And so Jesus was in that environment when people had different views on the loss of their, you know, cultural sway or cultural power, authority, uh, zealots, Essenes, Pharisees. And here's what Jesus said in essence, I'm boiling down the entire Gospels now to uh, one sentence. Here's Jesus. All of you are wrong. That's what he said, right? And this, the way he said it was this. He spoke specifically to each group. To the zealots, he basically, remember uh, when Jesus arrested, uh, Peter pulls out a sword. Bam! No, you're not taking Jesus. You're gonna, you know, he's going to kill people. And he cuts that guy's ear off. Do you remember that? What does Jesus, first of all, what does Jesus do? He heals the ear of the guy who's come to arrest and execute him, which says something. Then he also says, put away your sword. Remember? He who lives by the sword, what? Dies by the sword. So violence isn't going to be the way. Then what about the Essenes? Well, we, he doesn't address them directly, but indirectly, when Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration, if you know, he's, like he goes up there with some disciples, and then suddenly his face is glowing because he, like he sheds his humanity, and we see Jesus in all his naked uh, uh, deity glory. And Peter then says, let's just stay here, right? Well, I'm going to make some tents for you and Moses and whoever else was there, you know, Elijah or Abraham or whoever he was. I'm going to make some tents we're just going to hang out here. We're just going to wait here because this, like, this is the best, right? All the sin and smog is down there. You know, go high. <laughs> what did Jesus say? She said, oh, no, no, no. You know, God speaks. Get down. Engage the culture. You see, Jesus went to Seattle Pacific University, so he's calling people to engage the culture and change the world. But seriously, he's calling people, he says, no, like the answer is a withdrawal. And there's the Pharisees, and they're like, if we could just be more moral. And here's what Jesus said to them, John 5, 39. He says, you guys are obsessed with the text because you think that in the text you find eternal life. The text points to me, but you're not interested in me. You think that the problem is that your your moral construct is, is either unclear or it's clear and you're not obeying it. That's not the problem. I'm not calling you to morality first. I'm calling you to a person first. So zealots, Essenes, Pharisees, uh, and we have our own kind of mutations of those same things today, right? So Jesus then comes into this, and what he says in saying, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth, is a critique of all these forms of engagement. You know, whether it's withdrawal or violence or quote-unquote moral majority, none of them are going to work. And he offers us another way. And so what is that way? Well, we come to discover the way by asking some questions this morning. Question number one, who are the meek? Question number two, right, who owns the earth? 
Question number three, what does it matter? So we're going to look at basically those three things. Who are the meek? Who owns the earth? What does it matter? And we begin with who are the meek. And at the outset, we have this dilemma, right? Because when you think about meekness, and even if you do a word study of meekness, whether in Greek or in English, you find the cultural synonyms pointing uh, to passivity and the cultural antonyms pointing to arrogance. And so like when you go, okay, how am I supposed to behave vis-a-vis the world in which I live, uh, uh, meekness seemed on the surface to imply cowardice, fear, and withdrawal, but Jesus redefines it, right? So it's not cowardice, it's not fear, it's not withdrawal, but neither is it the prevailing antonyms of that, arrogance, brashness, this macho, you know, we're going to do it by any means necessary, it's not that either. So it's not, you know, take back the culture, and, and neither is it forget about the culture and, and, and withdraw. It's something else, right? And so kind of what is that thing is the question on the table. And understand that we still have a hard time getting this thing, this meek thing right. We still have a hard time. That there are prevailing models today that model zealotry, Essenes, and Pharisees to this very day, right? You, in, within dispensationalism, for example, you have a form of the Essenes, the ones who withdrew. Because uh, if you know anything about theology, and you don't have to, but, but dispensationalism is... Um, though it has many facets, one of the facets is this. Look, don't even worry about the earth. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And then when all hope is lost, bam, Christ returns, you know, takes the holy out of here. Then it's hell on earth for seven years or three and a half years or a thousand years, depending on your theology. And then Christ returns and he fixes everything, right? So that's a, that's a model. And in that model, uh, it, there's, it, it calls for withdrawal. Don't worry about the earth. Who cares about global warming? 350.org, move on, right? It doesn't matter. Why? Because it's all going to burn anyway. Haven't you read 1 Peter? The earth will be burned up with fiery flames. And so get a Hummer, man. Get two. And, 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 you know, drive a half mile and get your video at 7-Eleven with your giant Slurpee and go home and sit on your sofa and watch war movies. Nobody cares. As long as you stay married and tithe, I'll be happy, right? I mean, that's, and it's crassest form. That's a, do you understand what I'm saying? It's a form of withdrawal, right? Like, I, look, I can't fix the world, but I can live a holy life, holy. And so I'm just going to, that's what I'm going to do. That's a way. Uh, overblown covenant theology, on the other hand, says, yeah, look, the kingdom is already here, and our job is to, is to make sure it's here in a, you know, in a big way. And so then we organize, and we mobilize, and we strategize, and we, you know, we work hard to make the kingdom happen. And, and at times, in, a, in its worst iterations, this obsession with making the kingdom happen escalates until the subtext becomes by any means necessary, right? If I have to lie, if I have to cheat, if I have to resort to violence, if I have to kill my enemies, I'll do it. And, and, and Jesus is explicitly saying, no, that's not, that's not your calling at all. That's not how you engage. You don't, you don't engage as the angry person, always carrying the sign, always lifting a single finger, always mad, always, no, that's not, this is not your calling. 
And of course, we, we have in our history, more recently, what's called the moral majority, and some of you know, right? It's like, yeah, we're going to make these, we're going to restore morality by legislating morality, but part of the problem with that construct is we're going to legislate a very specific morality uh, that, that is really the morality of the gatekeepers. And, and it, may, it may have a great deal to do with sex and nothing to do with greed, perhaps. Or a great deal to do with marriage and nothing to do with the environment. And I'm here to say uh, that uh, none of us have a corner on the market of morality because, because God's kingdom, really, when we take it seriously, hear me, it critiques all of us. So I can't, I can't say that I've got it and, and now I'm going to impose it on you because I, the first problem is, A, I don't have it, and B, I'm not called to impose it on you. That's not very meek of me. So, so here's the problem. We're, we're, we're like sometimes, if you look at church history, it feels like a pinball moving from, you know, monasticism, withdrawal, to activism, to, to, to outright war, to more majority, to moral purity. Bing, 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 bing. And here's the thing, we're not scoring points. <laughs> None. So, so along comes Jesus, and he says, blessed are the meek. Well, who are these people, the meek? Well, here, here's what you have to understand about meekness. The meek... First of all, have a, they have a vision for justice, <clears throat> peace, transformation. Why? Because the meek are citizens of God's kingdom. So, like, their moral imagination has been captured by what uh, the picture painted Isaiah of a world with no, you know, no cancer, no, no disease, no human trafficking, uh, no misogyny, no, no kind of... Uh, overlording and, and oppression, no poverty, no hunger. Everybody has a place at the table, and it's all, it's, it's peace. Read it. It's in Isaiah 24. It's in Isaiah 9. It's in Isaiah 11. The, the environment is transformed. It's in Isaiah 61. It's in Isaiah 65. It's all over the Bible. Like, God is envisioning uh, a, a world in which, for example, every person eats from the fruit of their own vine. And so that means if I work, I get to enjoy the fruit of that. So it's, there's no oppression anymore. And where all the nations are joining hands and every person from every nation, every skin color, they're all sending them out of God together and every dividing wall has been broken down and the meek have a vision for this kind of world. And that's, that's very important. I have the vision, but then this is the other thing and it's just as important. Hear me. The meek then have this vision and they care about the means of realizing the vision as much as the end. Does that make sense? It was I have a vision, but I also care about how the vision comes about. And, and the meek would be like this, only in God's way and only in God's time, as opposed to by any means necessary. And, and this is hugely, hugely important. A, like Abraham, in, in his early days, was not meek. God had given Abraham a promise. Hey, hey congratulations, Abraham. You know, Genesis 12. You're going to be a father of nations, which you can't be the father of nations until you're a father but he's 75, his wife's 65. They've been married for probably, I don't know, 50 years or something like that, and nothing, right? No children. And so the odds are, you know, remote at best. And God says, you're going to be fruitful. And so he waits a little while uh, for the fulfillment of his promise, but then eventually Sarah says, enough waiting, right? God helps those who help themselves. Doesn't it say that in the Bible somewhere? There's a book, I don't know, Find it. It's, it's got to be true. So here's the maid. She's 16. Sleep with her. She's fertile. I'm not. Good luck. Enjoy the evening. And then she gets pregnant, right? 
Did it, does Abraham know God? Yes. Love God? Yes. Want to do God's will? Yes. Was this good? No! Why? Because the meek care about the means as much as the end. And he was supposed to wait and wait and wait and wait. It was 99 before finally there'd be a child. So, understand here, meekness means that I have this, this vision for God's future and I'm concerned about the how of living into that. The ends matter as much uh, as the means, and the means then, of course, matter as much as the ends. This is right here. This is a problem for all of us in the room in different ways. Some of us have a great vision for the future, but we're not concerned about the means. And so we're taking it upon ourselves to make it happen, and then we've lost our meekness. Others of us, for some of us, the problem is we're a little too Essene, in a way, I would say, or something we've withdrawn, and we're like this, I don't care about, the, I don't even care about the future. I've got a job, I'm upwardly mobile, I'm educated, I've got, I own a house, it's good enough, and so I'm just gonna, you know, read my Bible, pray, tithe a little bit, get involved, you know, teach a class or something, and, and that's, come on, that's the Christian life. Who needs this kingdom? Well, that's wrong. I'm called, it's crazy to be called to this, but I'm called to have a vision for what God is going to do in the world and then, and then wrestle with what is my part in that and take my little small step, even though it seems insignificant. And I'm just going to tell you, that's what Martin Luther King did. He took little steps. And all, every, every step along the way, as, his, as he grew in notoriety and popularity, there was always a group of people, if you read his biography, always a group of people there advocating that he resort to violence. Same thing with Gandhi in India, the same thing. Hey, come on, I, don't, I know what you're doing, but listen, if you really want to make some action here, I have some bombs, I have some pipe bombs, I have some guns, I have a stash of ammunition, and, that, and we'll make it happen. And every time MLK says, no, the means matters. Sophie Scholl, same thing, less well-known, but a hero of mine because of her work in you know, Germany distributing literature both by mail and at the University of Munich, just tossing it off the balcony there, uh, advocating uh, for resisting the Reich by, you know, if you work in a munitions factory, don't load the bombs. Just Send out empty bombs and, and whatever you can do. And, and her point was this, this Reich <clears throat> is headed to doom. We know it because we know God will win. We know it. And so don't align with this, even if it costs your life. And so she's distributing literature. They were invited to resort to violence and they said, no, that's not the way of Christ. So, so we have a vision, but also we understand that the means matter. The person who has a vision and who realizes the means matter, that's the meek person. Does that make sense? And so, so uh, it's not passivity because everybody's going to have a step to take in this story. But it's also not, uh, you know, rooted in frustration. It's rooted in obedience. The meek mind the means. So this is very practical for all of us in the room. I mean, if you want a just world, good for you. And if you're, if you're disappointed in... Uh, uh, January 20th, fine. Or if you're thrilled about it, fine. But I'm just going to say this. Ranting on Facebook is not God's way to make a just world, right? Like just to go on there and, oh yeah, dun, 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 dun. you can, go ahead, you can do it. But uh, I'll just say as your friend, not many people are impressed 
because we kind of have, we've kind of defaulted into echo chambers, and so we all, we, you know, we listen to people that we listen to, and we click like, and then if, if we see something we don't like, we either unfriend that person, or we do this emoji with this oh face, like, oh, I can't believe you said that, you know, whatever that means, I don't even know. Or we put a teardrop or something, or we write something rude, you know, because we can say it on Facebook and nobody cares. And I'm just saying, look, uh, why don't you ask the question, is this God's way? You just ask, you know? And I don't think it is. And I also think, you know, pipe bombs is not God's way either. And violent overthrow isn't God's way. Well, you know, what is God's way then? Here's, <laughs> sadly, I don't have a strategy for you because one of the premises of the meek is this. God is writing a story of hope in the world, and the story is so long that no generation will ever see the end of the story. Does this make sense? I mean, the story is so long that all of us have a small role to play. How do I know this? Hebrews 11, which says this. After listing all these faithful people, you know, Abraham and Noah and, and Moses and Elijah and whoever else is listening, Daniel's in there too, Isaiah's in there, all these people. So they all did cool stuff. This is my paraphrase of Isaiah 11, or Hebrews 11. They all did cool things. You know, they were all good, amazing. And this is the key. Everyone died without receiving what was promised. In other words, you know, Moses, here's the promised land, and God says, you get to go to here, but not to there. And, you know, when Joshua dies, it's still not fully conquered. And when David dies, it's conquered, but he wanted to build a temple, and he didn't get to, you know? And when Solomon dies, uh, he made things worse because 300 wives, but that's later. So, you know, so my point is, no one gets to go, we did it. No one. And not only that, but if you read Hebrews 11, this is what you see. Some people live to be 120 or whatever John lived to be. And other people died as young men. Some, it says, shut the mouths of lions. Remember Daniel and the lions then? You know that story? And, and the lions didn't eat him and they should have. And then it says, and others were sawn in two. Well, that's Isaiah. And you know, you read Hebrews 11 and you're like this. I want to be the guy who shuts the mouths of lions, not the guy who's sawn in two. God could, is there a sign-up sheet somewhere? Because I'm, like, I'm over here, I want to be on this sheet. And here's the meek. The meek are like this. I don't care. I can be sawn in two, or I can shut the mouths of the lines. I can be rich, I can be poor, I can be healthy, I can be sick. I can pastor a big church, a tiny church, I can be rural, urban. But this is the one thing I want. I want to play my part in the story and not be the architect or author of the story because God's writing the story. And I have a role to play. And I, my hope is that I and you and we will play our role faithfully and leave the results in God's hands because that's what it means to be meek. Meekness is not activism at any cost. Meekness is God's will done in God's time by God's strength and leaving the results to God, right? So that uh, when Peter's preaching in Jerusalem early in Acts, the authorities approach him, religious authorities, by the way, said, we forbid you to talk about Jesus anymore. And Peter doesn't stab the guy, you know, or, you know, withdraw with the disciples and plan a violent overthrow with the Sanhedrin. He just says, well, thanks for that, and I'm going to keep preaching anyway. And if you want to kill me, you can kill me. But go ahead and kill me, because then the next guy will preach. And the next guy will preach. We're, we're going to be faithful to our calling, come what may, that's meek. It's pretty courageous, actually, to be meek. Quite courageous. Um, when um, Sophie Scholl ultimately is arrested, right, because she kind of 
takes the literature and she tosses it off the thing there in Munich and a, and a janitor sees her, grabs her, she's arrested. And so she, the, if you ever watch the movie Sophie Scholl, which I encourage all of you to do, um, because the movie is just simply taken from the, the transcript of her interrogator inter interrogating her for two days. That's all it is. And so here's this man, and he's interrogating a 22-year-old woman, 20, maybe 23, but early 20s. He's interrogating her. <laughs> and uh, at the end of this long interrogation, he knows that she's on the moral high ground. He knows it. And we know that because when you flip the DVD over, uh, there's specials on the other side, and one of the specials is a lengthy interview with the offspring of that interrogator who, who say, uh, our dad talked about her the rest of his life. And he, like, he could not sleep that she went to her death. But anyway, this is what he says to her. He says, look, look, all you got to do is sign this paper saying that your brother made you do this, and I can get you off. Six months in this little basement here in Munich, and then you're free. Just say your brother made you do it. You want to hear her answer? She said, oh, no. Uh, she said, no, I'd do it again. And then she, this is what she says. She goes on. She says, you can execute me. It's okay. Because I know I'm right. That, you want to know what meekness is? That's meekness. I'm not going to fight back. I mean, here's meekness. How simple is this? Do the right thing. <laughs> So Peter, I'm going to keep preaching. Sophie Scholl, I'd do it again. Uh, MLK, when LBJ tries to get him to stop marching, he just politely said, no, we'll keep marching until, until the vision is fulfilled. That's the way it is. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not activism at any cost. Meekness is God's will, God's time, God's strength, God's results. And so what, what all of us in the room need to do then is ask the question, what's my role in God's story? What is it? And what's the next step that God has for me to take? And, th and we just do that, and we don't worry about the results. I, don't, I can't worry, will my faithfulness lead to me losing my job or losing my life or something? Well, I just want to be faithful. So that's meekness. And then the text says, well, blessed are the meek because they will inherit the earth. So uh, we're going to talk about this just for a moment here. Because the thing is, we, we live uh, in an ownership culture, and uh, what the text says is not the rich inherit the earth, not the poor inherit the earth, the meek inherit the earth. And so we kind of live in a world where private ownership is our perspective. That's kind of the capitalist way, right? And so you want to know who owns what. You can go down to King County and you can look in the clerk's office and find out who owns a particular piece of property. And owns is the operative word here in our discussion. And it's because that's the world in which we live and have lived since the founding of our nation, private ownership is, is the way we understand the world. And a subtext of that is the more you own, the, the more influence you have and all that stuff. And here's the thing. No one's debating that. No one's saying it's bad. Uh, this, isn't you know, this isn't communism that the text is advocating. All that, this, all that the text is telling us is in Mark 13, it says that this system, the world, and that, uh, the word there is not the earth, but the world uh, means like the world systems in which we find ourselves. It says the world is passing away. 
So communism is passing away, socialism is passing away, capitalism and private ownership is all passing away. It's here now, use it, fine. If you have a million acres, good for you. Yeah, be generous, fine. If you rent, don't worry about it, it's all good. But understand that from God's perspective, right, the ones who will only care for the earth and, and by earth, we mean everything. We mean the geography, the physical earth will care for the earth and the systems that flow from the earth. The, who will care for the earth? The owners. And who are the real owners? In eternity, who are the real owners? The meek. And that, uh, it's intended to be us then, right? Those who are committed to God's way, uh, God's time, and leaving the results in God's hands, the meek, we own it. And we read in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's. But then we also know that we're kind of joint heirs with Christ, right? So because of that, uh, we, we, we own it. And, and that's the world in which we live. And so we know this, Psalm 104, God cares for the earth. And we know from that in Psalm 104, when you see the kind of the water cycle, now that we're back to kind of normal Seattle weather, we all go, oh, it's raining all is right with the world again, right? Isn't that what we all think? It's what I think anyway. Oh yeah, good. Stuff's coming in off the Pacific and then it's falling snow up there and, and that, that means in July we still have water. Good for us, wonderful. And God's providing for us because every drink that we take really is dependent upon this stuff that we take for granted. So God's providing, but the end God is asking us to work with God on this, right? So in Genesis 2.15, we're told that we're called to cultivate and keep the earth. That's our calling as humans. Cultivate and keep. Do you realize what that, I mean, this is so powerful. Cultivate means what? Make the earth productive. Allow the earth to yield for you. That's cultivate. Keep, do you know what keep means? Make the earth sustainable. So it sounds really simple, right? Cultivate and keep. Can I just suggest it's not that simple? Because our calling of cultivate and keep has has in general um, fallen into two, two huge camps. Uh, cultivate at the expense of keep. Do you know what I mean? Maximum productivity of the land. So, hey, if there's oil there, get it. Yeah, but you know, you've got to pump in a billion gallons of water and blow it up, and it's called fracking, and now we have sinkholes and earthquakes. Oh, yeah, but there's oil, man. Get the oil. We're cultivating. Yeah, but you're not keeping. Do you see? And so, and then the alternative is kind of radical earth first, keep, but don't what? Don't cultivate. Yeah, forget about, in fact, it's better if we all just die so the earth can go on because we're doing a terrible job. So forget about, you know, don't eat and just go, go find a lion and get eaten and then uh, <laughs> peace be with you, right? Like, like that way we'll care for the earth. So, you know, don't hike because you're going to kill something, and, you know, two extremes. <laughs> so how, like, where are we in this? Well, understand, you see, we have a calling to cultivate and keep, and our calling to cultivate and keep is as owners. Do you understand? Like, this is, this is our inheritance, the earth. So we're called to be people who care for the earth. 
And, and by that, we mean that when we care for the earth, caring for the earth has economic consequences. So, so when we look at injustice and poverty, we recognize that injustice and poverty are not all, ever purely economic issues, they're environmental issues. Environmental issues are economic issues, economic issues are environmental issues, and economic issues then lead to human issues, human trafficking, and, and, and prostitution, and oppression, and it's all woven together in a cloth, and here's Jesus, look, it's the meek who will make a difference. Because they're not going to become activists and blow stuff up to make the world just. And they're not going to go hide in caves because they don't care. They will cultivate and keep as owners. That's you and that's me. That's a calling. When I was in Colorado a few years ago, my son and I rented a car. And if you're a, land, a landlord in this room, and some of you are, I know, you understand that uh, there's an, it's kind of a general truism, and some of you rent, so no offense is intended here, but sometimes renters don't care as well for property as owners. True? Is that true? Most of you agree? And, and you see it. I mean, we've rented two people before, and it hasn't been pretty, you know? We said no dog. And then uh, uh, the gas guy was supposed to fix something and then he, call, he calls on the phone and he says, yeah, I wanted to go fix the thing but I couldn't get in because it was this gigantic dog and he tried to eat me and by the way, he's been eating your sheetrock I thought you'd want to know. Well, yeah, I did want to know that. I mean, that's, that's good to know. So, you know, renters don't always care is my point, right? Well, so we rent this car and uh, then we're going to go on this hike and so we're following the thing and it, so pavement turns to Gravel, you know, gravel turns to sand, basically, with some stones. And then, then, by the end, we feel like we're riding in a creek bed, you know. And the bottom, big rocks are hitting the bottom of the car. And I go, man, this is my confession to you. I go, man, good thing it's a rental. <laughs> right? Good thing it's a rental. I mean, I'd be worried about this, but, you know, we only owned it for 12 more hours. <laughs> then it's somebody else's problem. So then, you know, we're driving back to the airport in Colorado at Denver, and my son opens the rental agreement. He says, Dad, did you realize here that it says we're only supposed to drive on pavement? I said, no, that probably would have been good to read ahead of time. But I'm not a detailed person, so I didn't. And then uh, we found ourselves in this creek bed. And, and I share the story with you because that's, in its worst form, uh, kind of moral majority dispensational Christianity. Hey, the earth's going to burn up anyway. Who cares? And only Jesus can fix racism. Who cares? And only Jesus can fix human trafficking and prostitution. And he's not here. Can I just almost shout to you? Yes, he is here. Christ is here. You're Christ. You're the hands, the feet, the voice, the body, the presence of justice, mercy, righteousness, sustaining and caring and cultivating and keeping the earth. It's you and it's me. And we must do it in God's way, God's time, peacefully, leaving the results in God's hands. But that is our calling. We're meek. So, so here's the conclusion. What are, what are you supposed to do with all this? Three things. First, you have to care for the earth. Not uh, as renters, but as owners. And that may not have ab obvious application. Like, oh, well, what does that mean? I think it means a couple of things. At first, it begins by enjoying the earth. Uh, we've unconsciously uh, turn the earth into the, a stage on which we live our lives and we move from climate controlled here to climate controlled there and we're not actually engaging with the earth and John Muir who I believe ultimately is a believer for many reasons I don't have time to share um, 
he would say uh, that you only, you only begin to care for the earth when you first ex enjoy the earth and you enjoy it when you experience it. And so you have to get out. There's a book entitled Last Child in the Woods, the, the thesis of which is we're increasingly insulating our children and, and we're not only in fear of the other, we're in fear of the earth. And I just say, uh, sometime read a little bit of John Muir's diary and he's in Yosemite one day and there's a windstorm and the wind is probably 60, 70 miles an hour. So what he says is, so I decided to climb a fir tree in, in a windstorm, 100 feet up. He says, oh, it was remarkable. The slender tops were flapping and swishing in passionate torrents, and I was hanging on, <laughs> bending and swirling backward and forward. An arc of 30 degrees one way, 30 degrees the other. But I felt sure of its elastic temper and learned that God cares for the earth. Come on, go snowshoeing or something, right? <laughs> because encounter leads to enjoyment, and enjoyment leads to searching. Second, your next step is to find God's next step for you. Like, what is your step as a meek person in God's kingdom? Uh, for some of you, maybe the step yesterday was uh, uh, marching. For another, somebody went to the library and said, uh, talking to the Seattle Public Librarian downtown, can we just say uh, it would be our desire that these public computers not be used for pornography, and we just want to register our voice there. And for another, it may be throwing a party for your neighbors and getting to know people who are of a different gender orientation or a different race or a different faith or a different economic class. But you, I, I promise you this, everyone has a next step. But you, and you won't hear the next step unless you are living in intimacy with Jesus, so maybe that's your first step. And then finally, the last kind of thing is this. As we live into the next not four years, the next 400 years. Can we just relax and, and rest in the, the results, not as helpless victims, but confident victors? Why? Because we know the end of the story. We know the end of the story. And, 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 and so I, I, I leave you then with a, another a quote from Sophie Scholl, right? This is the last entry in her, in her uh, diary. So, you know, she had throwing the stuff off the balcony there at University of Munich and uh, gets arrested. And then two days of interrogation. The third day, she's beheaded. 23, 22. Last thing she wrote. How can we expect righteousness to prevail when there's hardly anyone willing to give themselves up individually to a righteous cause? It's such a fine, sunny day, yet I must go. <laughs> but what does my death matter? If through us thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action, I will rest. Do you love this? I will rest knowing I've followed God. That's the life I want to live, come what may. We're called to next steps, friends. In a world afraid, called to be people of courage. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're not calling us to weakness or disengagement or anger that would lead to violence but you're calling us to this firm vision of your future and particular steps that each of us will take because you're the author of the story, not us. Give us ears to hear, hearts to respond. We'll thank you for the fruit of it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's worship together.